and listen to, to remember and accept. I vow to taste the truth of the Tathagata's words. All right, well, just uh, one announcement, I guess. Uh, just a reminder that our next practice session after tonight is Saturday uh, with our all-day Zazenkai, which will begin at 8.30 and run to uh, 4.30. Uh, so that means we're kind of entering tonight into a mountains and waters extravaganza. Since tonight we're going to talk about mountains and waters, and we'll have two talks about it on Saturday. So if you don't uh, feel fully satisfied with the dose you got tonight of mountains and waters, just come on back Saturday and we'll take care of that. We should uh, make a, a fairly significant amount of progress in the text uh, between the three talks. Uh, and the other thing to make you aware of, because I just got an email uh, earlier today from Doug Jacobson at Jacoji, is their next session is going to take place the week after Thanksgiving, uh, their traditional Rahatsu Sashin, which traditionally has been uh, done entirely in silence. So there haven't been Dharma talks, uh, nor services, any of that, just sitting. But they've decided, I think uh, just fairly recently, that. Uh, because it'll be on Zoom, that it probably made sense not to do it in that traditional fashion, but rather to do it uh, with Dharma talks. So he was reaching out to me to see if we'd want to dive in like we did for Denkoe. And, and I told him that we as Crooked River Zen Center, because we've got a pretty rich variety of things, we're, we're going to be uh, engaged in, including our own Sashin, uh, just within a couple of weeks of theirs. But I said, if you send me uh, the schedule and the login information, I'll certainly share it with everyone. And some of us, including myself, I know, uh, will pop in and out as our schedules permit that week. But I myself, uh, you know, wasn't planning on doing too much. And I definitely uh, did not hold my hand up to volunteer to do any of the talks either. So, <laughs> so just, but, but that will be available to folks. So, uh, you know, certainly, if you want to dive in and do the whole thing, it's available to you. But uh, but if even if you just want to uh, do some segments of it, I'll get more details to you as as I receive them. And with that, I think we're we're good to dive into mountains and waters. Then, unless there's anything that any of you have. 
in the way of announcements or questions from uh, from what we uh, looked at last week. Uh, and if not, then then where I'm going to come in tonight, uh, the opening comments will bring us back to looking at Dogen's notion of time. We're going to go through that briefly because we're we're just recovering territory that uh, that Shahaku's already taken us through. And uh, from there, we're going to get into this notion of, of our sense of reality, comparing it to fiction, to a dream. And we'll spend uh, a decent amount of time tonight looking at that, too. So time. Uh, where I want to start with that is... Uh, Shahaku's comment that my past experience is part of my life at this moment. Always true. Every moment. So every moment includes the past. My past experience in the case of my present moment. And, and also, as long as we're talking about the present, the reminder that this moment has no length. So there's really nothing there. It's kind of like in numerical terms, it's zero. It's the zero point, the origin, which is what the zero point is, of our life. And this zero state includes the entire past as our karma. Even though it's a zero point, it includes all of our karma. So it seems contradictory, I know. But just kind of keep that in mind. And as long as we're talking about past, present, we can't neglect the future. So of course our future is also included in this present moment. And it appears there in terms of things like vows, aspirations, hopes, desires. Those all exist in the present and yet they're future oriented. So this self, which is as tiny as a drop of dew, the dew drop on the grass, this zero point, if we want to take that to the extreme level here, this self reflects the entire universe, all the past, all the future, everything in this dewdrop on a blade of grass. This, in Dogen's teaching, is the self.
And this is the point from which we'll enter into the description of our life and our experiences as self, as being fiction, dreamlike. So this moment is a fiction. We've kind of seen that in our analysis of time, our analysis of the present, the present that can't exist by its very nature because it's always fleeting. There's nothing there. So it's, it's a fiction that we create to give us some sense of substance. To kind of keep us from falling down that rabbit hole. But this moment is a fiction. And without this fiction, there's no reality. Because reality in the midst of change, we can accept the Buddhist teachings on impermanence, but kind of implicit in what we're accepting is a sense that there is something that's going through these stages of change. There's something there that changes. So we're still kind of hanging on to a sense of, of some essence, some substance. That's the reality. It's always changing, but then what is it that changes? A good Zen koan. What is it that changes? It's a fiction. The moment is a fiction. And without this fiction, there's no reality. So for us, in our experience of, of our lives, this fiction is the reality. That's it. So that's why we go to the point that this life is like a dream. There's no substance to it. If a dream is just these firings of neurons going on in our brain, but it's not real. We can have a dream that we're flying, but it's not real. So this is, brings us to Dogen's, another teaching of his, which is the entire subject matter for another fascicle in the Shobal Genzo. And that's this sense of waking up within the dream and realizing it's a dream. 
So to, to awaken is to have this awakening, this awareness, this insight, realizing it's a dream. Because in our normal everyday affairs, we assume our dream is simply reality. And we cling to it as substantial, permanent. This is how we carry ourselves in our lives, as if that were the case. So this is to live in a dream as if it's reality. To awaken within the dream is to realize, oh, that's a dream. That's a fiction. And part of our uniqueness as individuals is that we're each in our own different separate dreams within which we're the center of our own story. It's our dream. Others can populate our dream, but it's our dream. As an early Bob Dylan song put it, talking about uh, just going back to the early 60s, the potential for the end, end of life as we know it uh, was in many people's minds. Uh, he had this, this wonderful line about uh, uh, people dreaming that you know, they, they're the last ones on the planet. As he uh, jokingly expressed it in this song, that was becoming a common dream. Everybody running around thinking they're the last ones on the planet. He had the line, I'll let you be in my dream if I can be in yours. <laughs> but it's still our dream. Well, we might let some other people in. And we are the center of our own story. So this is where it's helpful, given the role of self in creating delusion, ignorance, suffering. It's good to awaken to the fact that it is a dream because self then becomes deflated, drops off. It's a fiction. As are all of our separate realities that we create built around our sense of self with the falling away of self, all of those at the same time 
drop off. And part of this awakening, part of this understanding of the fiction of the moment is to see the truth that this moment is not a step to the next moment, which is to see that practice is not a path we follow to attain enlightenment. That's based on this model of each moment is a step to the next moment. So if I practice this week, it'll lay the groundwork for future awakening. That's a common way of viewing our practice. Practice is just a step to the next stage. But if we see this moment as including the entire stream, past, present, future, nothing outside of it, nothing left out, then we can begin to awaken to the fact that that awakening, true awakening is in this very moment. And it has nothing to do with a stage moving from one point to another to another. It can't. Because everything that's needed is right here. Every moment, that's always true. And if we practice sincerely, which means wholeheartedly, and it means that we're not trying to be anything other than what we are right here, right now at this very moment. That's to be sincere and authentic. So if we practice in that fashion, then Buddhahood awakening is already here in what we're doing right now whatever that is. This is another standard teaching in Zen. That it's available to us in our most ordinary activities. Sweeping temple grounds, drinking tea, pulling weeds, as long as we are practicing sincerely, 
and mindfully. The sincerity so important, just as you are. Not trying to be anything different. This is where striving for enlightenment, while in early stages, can be almost vital to to energizing our practice, but ultimately can become a hindrance because there's this sense that I'm I I will be complete once I am enlightened that I'm lacking now. And that's a hindrance to the kind of sincere, authentic practice that Dogen's describing, just as you are. Not trying to be anything any different. We can only awaken right where we are. In these causes and conditions, in this muddy water, in this mountain stream, or do you bring bring in another one of Dogen's terms that we introduced, I think it was last week, in, in this Dharma position, because each moment bringing with it as it does everything else, <clears throat> this moment then becomes this point in the midst of everything else, kind of like the Indra's net metaphor. with the jewels in that net being the individual points. And they're just reflecting the light from all the other jewels in that net. Of course, now nowadays, we go from net to network, networking, the interconnectedness. the Dharma positions within those networks. So in each Dharma position, we're lacking nothing. Whatever that position is, we can awaken. This applies to all things because all things have their Dharma positions. It's part of the basic truth of interdependence. That's all Dharma position is pointing to is interdependence. So in Mahayana, especially with the flower ornaments, Sutra took this notion of interdependence and really dove deeply into it and, and portrayed it as being infinite. 
it when you bring that back to each dharma position then each dharma position every point in that network is also infinite and that seems so contemporary. And you could present that teaching outside of a Buddhist, a Zen context. And a lot of people readily assent to, the, to that and say, yeah, that's, that seems clear. So this notion of interdependence on an infinite basis has really penetrated deeply into the modern mind, I think. So it's not a notion that's kind of date stamped and is well past its expiration date. which happens sometimes to ideas that, that were hatched that many centuries ago. But this one seems as timely now as it was when it was first uh, presented. So here we are in infinity infinite space, infinite time. And a question that's bound to come up within whatever Dharma position you're in is how do you orient yourself in infinity? The whole point, the whole sense of directionality begins to lose its meaning. Just to take, take it at the most fundamental level. I mean, north, south, east, west. That's all predicated on relativities. Relative to what? You know, on, on planet Earth, we have the sense of that. But if we were floating in outer space, if you were on, on uh, a trip to the space station and you were asked, what direction are you traveling in? It would be a meaningless question, right? <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> Going towards the space station. Well, what direction is that? What are you talking about? <laughs> so infinity can be unsettling because we lose that sense of direction that we depend on. So enter the Bodhisattva vows. They are our orientation for infinity. This is why 
beings are numberless. Delusions are inexhaustible. Dharma gates are boundless. All of these activities that we're, we're setting out, out to engage in are infinite activities. So that's why they can't be realized in our normal, finite, relative way of reckoning. But they're the perfect guidance system for awakened beings who are traveling in an infinite reality. So the notion of you know, how many beings have you saved? How many delusions have you uh, encountered? How many Dharma gates have you entered? That's meaning, that's as meaningless, literally, as asking what direction you're traveling in on your trip to the space station. This doesn't make sense in that frame of reference. It's just the way we're orienting. So we orient our lives to free beings, to liberate beings, to end delusions, to realize ending delusions just means that we continually practice to see their dreamlike nature. their fictional nature and let the notion of self upon which they're based drop off and resume our activity in the boundless realm. But of course, the boundless realm is no different than this realm of this and that. So it's not that we're escaping that realm. We're just seeing that our customary way of, of relating to it has been a dream, a fiction. So universal vows don't make sense in that dream, in that fiction. We want goals that can be attained, that we'll know when we attain them. We can measure the progress we're making. Anybody who's worked for an establishment that sets goals and objectives understands this. 
the notion of goals that can't be measured, that would get rejected out of hand. Need to rewrite your goals. You're breaking the rules. (laughs) They have to be measurable. We have to evaluate it, pure and simple. So when we take our vows, the vows are to conduct our practice in infinity, in the eternal realm. Otherwise, they're nonsense. They should be turned back like they would be in the uh, corporate world. Just say they. They don't work as goals. How will I know if, if I've achieved them? If I've gained promotion? Promotion to an official bodhisattva. I've got my performance review right here to document it. <laughs> We need these things, right? They're important. So vow gives us direction. Wherever we are, from every Dharma position, we don't need to worry about shifting our position so I can be better more strategically placed to achieve my goals. Right where you are. Right in the middle of infinity. Is just fine. It's the perfect place. Every every Dharma position is the perfect place for the practice. no matter what's going on at that position. And this brings us into Dogen's description of, uh, of the fact that, and, and here we come back to the imagery of mountains, that mountains are not only beautiful and virtuous, although they are certainly that, but they can sometimes be violent and merciless. Think Mount St. Helens for a real concrete example. I think it was something like 53 people died when that side of the mountain blew off. And we need to see the ugly part of the mountains too, both in that concrete example, but more broadly speaking. And we're certainly seeing some ugly parts of of some mountains these days as well. With notions of self playing a significant role there. But 
these are Dharma positions too that need our care and attention. So we take care of the ugly and the painful parts, of the beautiful and virtuous parts. It's not picking and choosing. It's just you know, reaching out like the, uh, the last of the ox herding pictures, the monk in the marketplace just reaching out to everybody. The ugly and painful parts of the marketplace and the virtuous and beautiful parts. How can we, with our own individual karma too, that we bring to our Dharma position? Because remember, each moment, even though it's, it's a zero point, it includes all of our past karma. So how is this particular point with our individual karma, how do we make this mountain better for all beings? How do we engage our bodhisattva service? which is what all this other stuff related to practice. Beginner's mind, letting go, dropping off body and mind. It all brings us to that. So it's an active practice. One of the Shovel Genzo fascicles we looked at a few months ago on Sunday mornings was the awesome presence of active Buddhas. This is active, it's practice. That's what everything is directed towards. It's all active. It's all practice. So virtue, virtuous action, is at the heart of it. It's no separate from zazen, from prajna. It's all one and the same thing. Virtuous action, bodhisattva, living the vows. So we have to discover how to practice with the ugliness within ourselves and the mountain. The things we normally want to turn away from, we want to avoid. As it exists both within ourselves and outside ourselves. 
So here's where to come back to our, our, our delusional sense of self. It's where we hopefully come to realize and appreciate that if we merely live to fulfill egocentric desires for fame, profit, whatever, all the directions these egocentric desires can, can be aimed towards, then we cannot say that our lives manifest timeless reality. We're not in accord with the true nature of reality. So this infinite, eternal aspect of our Dharma position, we're completely ignoring when we become self-serving, driven by the satisfaction of egocentric desires. And that's an important point to keep in mind as we're faced with things in our own national arena at this time that point to this. But they also give us the opportunity, as it's important we do in this practice, to turn that light within at the same time and recognize the teachings that are being given us here that we can see the truth, hopefully, with some clarity, because it's, it's being set forth so obviously. But that makes it all the more valuable as a teaching. Obviously, we need to respond to it. But we, at the same time, need to see that we have that at least capability at some level or another within ourselves. We can be like that. If things don't go our way, how are we prone to respond? Good tests for the Bodhisattva. Things don't go your way. While most of us don't have enough power in our Dharma position to call too much attention to ourselves, but it's, an, it's amazing how much harm we can do even without so much power. So, you know, these Dharma lessons are always there. 
and we need to awaken to them. So to, to go forth and have our lives manifest the infinite, the eternal. And not just our ego-based desires. And that would be a good point to kind of set the stage for Saturday. So I think I'll cut off here and open it up to all of you. Dean, the very first, thank you very much. This entire talk about time and, and, and everything was very good. The last thing you were talking about, um, us being driven by egocentric desires. My, my first thought was, could it be any other way? Could you expound on that? Yeah, yeah, because uh, that, that's... That's a, a great question because they do kind of drive us. I mean, even from earliest stages of life in terms of uh, uh, those initial uh, days uh, uh, breathing as, as free separate beings from, from mom. Uh, you know, we are uh, these egocentric little monsters, right? <laughs> but we are also, we're, we don't have the capability of awakening to the fact just yet. But even then, of course, we are these eternal, infinite beings. We can look at them and, and appreciate that and see that. So it'll take them a while before they can, they can awaken to that fact. So it's there. And what's happening, what this is pointing to is this truth, I think, that, that uh, all these particulars of our life, like needing food, you know, that's an egocentric desire. So uh, a baby knows, you know, if they're hungry, they need to cry because they can't express words yet and they'll, they'll get attention. Either they, they'll get a, diaper, a fresh diaper, they'll get fed, all, all the basic needs of life are, are taken care of fairly quickly. But, but those, while our, our environment becomes way more complex as we develop, but the, our, our interactions with the infinite and with the eternal are in those interactions. So as we grow up and we have a much richer uh, network of things that, that we interact with, uh, and we can interact with those continuing in our egocentric vein, and that's the way it commonly works, 
or we can work the same network of things but with with this from this place of awakening where we see them in their true nature so to speak as infinite as eternal as timeless so it's always embedded in them but so from that sense we do need to have those interactions it's it's the truth of interdependence we're dependent upon them at a very basic level initially and then it gets more and more complicated the through the uh, aging process but uh but the this is where the merging of difference in, in unity uh, co- comes into play. And we begin, part of, part of the maturing process is to be able to have a growing sense of the universal. So we can actually learn, you know, as a child, we can learn hopefully to kind of ramp back on on the egocentric piece and start to take into account other people. There's kind of a natural tendency for that, which is evolutionary theorists would say, well, that you should, you should expect that because it's, it's far uh, better for, for the species for, for propagation of the genes to be of a cooperative nature, get along with people, be able to work together rather than, you know, be a bunch of, uh, of egomaniacs, narcissists. <laughs> uh, you know, that's, <coughs> that's not a good way to, to propagate a species. Certainly not one as uh, as complex as Homo sapiens. Part of that complexity is finds its its flowering through the ability to cooperate. You know, otherwise, if we just all were egocentric and didn't have any capability of cooperating with others be, because of it. Uh, you couldn't trust anybody. You just kind of hunker down and take care of yourself. Uh, what would we have accomplished? Not much. Survival would have been a major accomplishment. So I think this ability to kind of ramp back on the ego is also a natural development. It's kind of Natural selection, I think, does select for people that are less egocentric. And then where does that ultimately go? So I think from that point, now people that are uh, are more contemplative, say, uh, are, are apt to, to take a path like that and to really investigate that. So that's my, my, my sense on that about our, our need to, to act on egocentric desires, but also our need, and it is a need, uh, 
a core need, I think, for us is to be able to move beyond that, too. They're both at play. Other comment? Um, mm -hmm. Well, early on when he talked about um, practicing with the goal of enlightenment in mind, how we're setting ourselves up for failure, popped in my mm -hmm. mind one of my favorite book titles was uh, Jack Cornfield's After the Ecstasy of the Laundry. I don't think I ever mm -hmm. finished it. It always, it always struck an accord that, you know, it's that's not the goal. And after you reach that, you're still, you're still going to suffer. There's still going to be uh, things that follow right. you. Um, then when you're talking, when we're talking about our dream, um, and living our dream, um, which is what a lot about what the text was about up to this as well. Um, I focus a lot on what I do and the decisions I make around my kids, you know, and I've got a bunch of kids and there's like six miles that live off my paycheck. And I feel like my dream is, uh, separated from my kid's dream, but, uh, it's based on influencing their dream. Oh Yeah. You know, and I think about sometimes how the Buddha even left his family to, to find the real truth. Um, and I've been going through some stuff, uh, you know, some adversity at work lately that's had me thinking like, I just want, I just want to leave, you know, I just, I don't want to deal with, it's, it's very unfair, um, things are happening, but I, I, I can't. <laughs> so I've had a lot of these thoughts lately um, around those, and you know, I want to leave the big company and, and the well-paying job and and do something that feels more beneficial uh, to the broader world, but would impact my kids, you know, um, yeah. terribly. And then, and then part of me thinks, is my adversity of my kids experiencing any hardship ego-driven as I see my kids as an extension of myself? You know, like I'm, I can't go beyond and, and do what's for the greater good of the world and stand up against this injustice because I'm really focused on, on my kids and, and, and boy, what they would go through if I was to say, you know, screw you, yeah. I'm here and I'm going to go be a bicycle mechanic because that's what I really want to do and, and make more money. But, <laughs> you know, I would never do that because, you know, you're tough. <laughs> I'd be, uh, you know, right. Right. 5% right. of what I need. Um, yeah. That, that's kind of been a struggle for a long, a long time. But all that came up as, as, as you were talking to me. And I even had a conversation recently um, and God, and I don't, don't take this the wrong way. I don't feel any, I don't wish COVID on anybody. I think it's a horrible thing. And I pray to God it's gone anytime soon. But I thought, boy, it's, it might be almost good that my kids experience COVID because they've never, and I never had, you know, I had personal um, stresses and I, you know, I, I'm a believer in struggle makes you stronger. And um, like I have, I have two sets of kids. I have kids in their twenties and kids in, in their teens and they, they've had, they haven't had much adversity at all. You know, I mean, they mm -hmm. just, no war, you know, my dad was in Vietnam, my grandfather was in World War II, uh, things like that. And I think, you know, they don't, the, so these kids have almost created anxieties and things because they haven't, you know, uh, there, there's things I think that they deal with that, you know, kids in Africa or kids in warring countries don't deal with because, they, they haven't had true adversity. And I think COVID might give them a little bit of true adversity to harden them up a little bit. <laughs> not that I think, yeah. I'm not, but yeah, that was my, my thoughts. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's a, a, 
I wouldn't disagree at all with that assessment. I think uh, adversity, the, you know, this the ugliness of, of the mountains that, that uh, I was talking about really is an important part because it is there. And so to try to shield our children from that, even though it's a natural uh, propensity we have out of caring. So that's coming from a, a good place too. But so, so there's kind of this middle path sense to it that, that sure, we, want, we don't want, want them to run out into the middle of a, a street. But at the same time, we want them to be able to, to, to build up some resilience to the uh, adversity that they are going to encounter. So to, to try to plot that kind of a course, because if we just shield them from adversity completely and totally, and they know it, uh, then they're very vulnerable. You know, we haven't really uh, uh, prepared them for, for life. You can even so, see it on a physical scale where someone who sanitizes their house completely all day, every day, then their, their children don't build up an immune. So even, you know, physical yeah. side, their immunities aren't built up because they haven't been exposed to any type of uh, bacteria or viruses. Same as uh, emotionally or uh, environmentally. Yeah. 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 I mean, so they're to go to the extreme either side is, is harmful. You know, we want to uh, protect them, but we have to be careful. We also want them to be able to, to work with adversity and not just jump in and, and make it all better. It, to, to, to have some consequences is not a bad thing. Actually, just uh, work through it. Yeah, it's really, really important. And I don't, it's, again, it's not that there's a right way or a wrong way that, oh, that's that, that's wrong. Uh, there is no right way because you can always second guess, uh, you know, what, how you respond to a given situation. It's really just bringing your caring nature, but with wisdom so that you can really care, care, uh, uh, compassion, loving kindness is not just a sentiment. You know, it has to, to accompany wisdom or else it's just, you know, being sentimental. Oh yeah, I love everybody, you know, <laughs> that's beautiful. <laughs> but, you know, I'd, I'd rather have somebody caring for me. Like if it's a medical issue, I'd like somebody caring for me who, who understands something about, uh, about the body and its afflictions and how to cure things. You know, uh, if, if I was out of made part of a, a prayer chain and people were praying for me. Well, thank you. You know, that's nice, but send the doctor in which <laughs> I'd, I'd like to, to get his uh, best wishes uh, even more. <laughs> and I think that general sense kind of carries us forward then in terms of how do we uh, care for others is to be able to bring our wisdom, our understanding 
And sometimes, that, uh, quite often, that's to, to have the sense that I don't know, don't know mind. In fact, I uh, had jotted down, I was going to use this at another point, but, uh, but this is a good point to, to use it, I think. Uh, the, the Enlightenment philosopher Voltaire uh, said that uncertainty is an uncomfortable position. We get that. But certainty is an absurd one. <laughs> that's good. <laughs> and that's kind of as we're out there uh, serving others. That's so important. So to do it from a place of humility, of, of don't know mind. But, you know, we, we don't... Uh, just take that as as a vow to ignorance it's a it's a recognition that uh, that we're finite beings and that we don't control outcomes all these things we've looked at in the past and to to accept that so we can act with our best intentions and our best understanding of a situation and still see see it go south it happens. And then we have to have some resilience and be able to go on because that can be devastating. Just the same way a doctor doesn't save all the patients. Could be the best doctor on the planet. Doesn't happen. Thank you. Dean, um, yeah. just a question about exhaustive virtue. Could you talk a little bit about um, what he's, um, you know, he's talking, does that, and it's on page 68 where he says each of us dwells in certain Dharma position, yet each of, and every one of us has a virtue called exhaustive virtue. Mm -hmm. um, does that mean that we have a limited amount of virtue that we can only give as much as we have or I read that a couple paragraphs or a few times and um, I guess I wasn't really clear because he explains the origin of the word exhaustive in Japanese and the origin of the word virtue in Japanese. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. The original word for exhaustive is gujin, which means to penetrate thoroughly or completely. So exhaustive is kind of like, uh, I guess if we want to use a firewood ash uh, uh, metaphor, exhaustive would be the complete burning of all the fuel. There's nothing left. So that's my reading of, of the, uh, his analysis of that word, to penetrate thoroughly or completely, to go completely. Nothing left over. 
to exhaust completely with nothing lacking. So in that sense, exhaustive virtue Hmm. And, and then he ta to, talks about virtue. Uh, this is where it it starts. It gets into the realm of of, of Zenki almost because he talks about uh, virtue as including function or the result of function. And of course, Zenki is total function. It's the infinite interdependence so that the totality is actually functioning. So, in a in a sense, you know, as, as I look at this, uh, what I'm taking from it is the exhaustive is kind of has uh, the same flavor for me of, of wholeheartedness. To penetrate thoroughly or completely is, is Bendawa, the wholehearted way, is to travel the way in such a fashion. To, pe to penetrate thoroughly or completely, wholeheartedly. You bring your whole being to this. So exhaustive virtue is, is something that we're deeply committed to. So it, and I, I think the sense the vow also comes, comes into play here. It's why we vow to conduct ourselves in certain ways. It helps lead to this exhaustive nature of our virtue because we vow it. We've committed to doing this. This isn't just uh, as it's convenient for us, if it happens to, to work well for us anyway, you know, then, then we'll do it. But we've, we've made a vow. We're gonna do it completely in a penetrating way. So that's, that's my, my sense of it. Yeah, I think I would just hung up on the word exhaustive. Like, yeah, I, I was thinking like the word exhausted because I feel like sometimes I've exhausted all my virtue. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I like, along, I couldn't get out of thinking along those lines with it, but I like wholehearted better. Yeah, yeah, I do too. <laughs> I think it'll carry you further on the pra in the practice. Thank you. Being just to build off of what Mark was saying, because um, I think I got tripped up on that too, um, mm. where I was kind of taking it quite literally. Um, but then as we were kind of talking it through, 
does it anchor back to the idea of like every moment is kind of complete or there's nothing kind of lacking in every moment? Yeah, I, I, th I think that's also part of it uh, uh, because there's, it's, it's, uh, there, there really is this sense then of when we fully engage, it's, it's almost like we're, we're, we're linked with, with the nature of reality and, and its constant flow. So the exhaustive nature doesn't mean that we, you know, we're just completely, you know, befrazzled. It's, it's that we are fully engaged and we're kind of uh, riding the ox, right? We're, we're there, we're there. And, and, and we're uh, still with our vows and, and, uh, and not, it's, it's not this sense of, of and, and I guess this comes back to what I was saying about uh, our sense of having uh, a set goal, a finite goal. So the exhaustive links in nicely with the infinite, the eternal, is that there is no uh, final point where you can measure it and say, okay, I, I, I did it. I've satisfied this virtue. Actually, it's exhaustive in the sense that, that to, to really penetrate it means from every Dharma position, it's a constant ongoing thing. So that, in that sense, I think, yeah, it's about uh, each Dharma position is constantly moving. But in, in its movement, it becomes fresh and new but at the same time, it's bringing everything else with it, the, the entire past, future. So it's the infinity of it is ever there, but it's, it's a new Dharma position that keeps changing. And that, I, I think, also this exhaustive virtue and its practice in such a world our world. So, yeah, thank you. That, that helps, I think, uh, explicate a little bit further where Mark was going. Yeah, you know, sometimes I get this sense that, like, for me, at least, like, when I'm on the cushion or whatever, and, you know, kind of in the process of kind of my mind is going to where oh, there's something wrong with like the moment. So I want to be like something else or doing something else. And like even what Keith was saying around like, why am I in the job I'm in? And why do I have the kids that I have to support? And yeah. you know, there's like, there's something wrong. And, and kind of like the exhaustive virtue part of it is kind of like, well, like, I guess the ash doesn't like think it should be firewood or the firewood doesn't, you know, is not okay with not being ash. And so, like when I get into that kind of space, then I feel like, like, oh, okay, the, this moment's complete and there's not something wrong with it. I can rest a little bit, I guess. Like that feels more skillful for, for me. So like 
think the conversation around, you know, exhaustive virtue, if it's more of like, oh, the moment's complete, like that, that feels, at least for me, that starts to feel better. Yeah. I think your connection's getting fuzzy. Yeah, my my internet connectivity here is is fading. <laughs> I had, I did have one quick thing I want to share. I came across a picture in our file of our very first Zoom session. Illustrates how long we've been on Zoom, just by the sh the sheer um, volume of Dean's hair. Yeah. <laughs> oh gosh. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> Who is that guy? <laughs> as soon as it's safe to go to the barber, I'm in there, believe me. <laughs> What a difference I thought I wanted to share that before we got off. I think you have come to look like an old philosopher. There yeah. you go. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> Either that or I'm, uh, I'm getting ready for a rehearsal for a rock, for an oldies rock band or something. There, there you go. I was thinking of Bertrand Russell, actually. <laughs> Yeah, that would be so appropriate. Our, <laughs> our neighbors think he looks like an old hippie. <laughs> That's what our neighbors say. <laughs> like an old. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I vow to myself and to each of you to commit myself daily to the healing of our world and the welfare of all being, to live on earth more lightly and less violently in the food products and energy I consume, to draw strength and guidance from the living earth, the ancestors, the future generations, and my brothers and sisters of all species to support others in our work for the world and to ask for help when I need it, to pursue a daily practice that clarifies my mind, strengthens my heart, and supports me in 